Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Tuesday's top story. All right, let's talk about this story. So the Ethereum merge went pretty smooth last week, which was great. Was it last week that it happened? Crypto just moved so fast. But unfortunately, we have this story as crypto market maker Wintermute has lost $160 million in a hack relating to its DeFi operations. Their OTC services have not been affected by the hack, but they provide billions of dollars in the market every day as they provide liquidity across multiple venues. And last week, the platform was named as the official DeFi market maker for the Tron network. And they're treating this as a white hat hack. And apparently this happened because the hacker took advantage of discovered vanity addresses and there was a vulnerability. So unfortunately, another day, another hack in crypto. I want to throw this over to Will for being sassy this morning. Yeah, I guess that fits pretty well with uh, me being sassy and people losing money. But that is what happens in DeFi, right? We've seen a lot of these stories this year. Regardless of how smooth the merge is, applications on top can still be in a precarious position because we're still learning how these things work, right? We've seen a lot of exploits this year, and this one just follows up on more of those. $160 million is obviously nothing to sneeze at. Luckily, Wintermute, which like you said, Wendy, is a very prominent player within crypto as a market maker, OTC desk, and trading firm is more or less fine. Definitely took a hit. No one wants to lose $160 million, but they have equity and other tokens on hand to shore up their own books. The interesting thing about this story is how technical it is, right? So I saw a few tweets about this. They're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. But like you said, it seemed to be a vanity address break, which essentially means someone pointed a lot of computing power at some addresses, was able to figure out the private keys behind these addresses and then exploit for funds. At least that's what we know so far. That's a pretty technical hack. And it means that someone really knew what was going on. They're really digging into the GitHub files of Wintermute, or at least familiar with what Wintermute was doing. This kind of shows you like what the next frontier is for a lot of these exploits. As things become more progressive, as things become more secure, you're going to see some of these hacks that are a little bit more sophisticated than the ones we've seen in the past. I think back to DeFi Summer, 
a lot of hacks. A lot of them were not that complex, to be honest. Like there were well-known re-entrancy attacks that have been documented for at least a few years at this point. But everyone was so new. All these projects were so new. No one really knew exactly how to go about securing their chains or securing their projects. We're a few years past that. Now we have a little bit more sophisticated hacks. Still the same amount of danger, right? You're still going to lose millions of dollars, uh, but it's a little bit harder to pull off. Jenny, I'll throw the story over to you. Get your take on it. Yeah, I mean, we speak about a different hack like every other week, so much so that I've called for control to create a wipe that says crime time. I don't know if they've done it, but I think <laughs> this <time>. story, <laughs> crime time. <laughs> I think I think the story and all the hack stories is just a reminder of how easy it is to track the criminals in this ecosystem. So I think it's really easy for newcomers to the space to read these headlines and be afraid to interact with DeFi protocols, be afraid to enter into the crypto ecosystem. But the hacker's address has been identified. And I think it's really important to highlight that aspect of the, of the stories when we talk about hacks. What I thought was interested, interesting is the CEO said they're treating this as a white hack hacker and they're encouraging the hacker to come forward. But are you able to treat hacks like this as a white hat or a gray hat? Isn't it the actual hacker that needs to identify themselves? As this, it feels like a little bit of a PR spin. They're like, yeah, we got hacked, but we think it's a white hat hacker and hacker, please come forward and say that. Do not assume anybody's title in 2022, okay? <laughs> but I wanted to add on to this. So there's hacks and there's security vulnerabilities that happen in every single industry, especially healthcare and traditional finance. Nobody talks about it. And the reason why mm -hmm. is because everything is super hidden. But with crypto, oh my God. We have this thing called a public ledger to where we can like see things happen in like real time. Like, oh my God, <gasps> what if? I'm just kidding. But the good thing is, is that we are able to see these types of things that are happening. We're able to see these bad actors. I believe when I saw the original post, CZ did comment and he said, let us know, you know, let Binance know if you need anything, we're monitoring addresses now, which is good. But at the same time, it's still not a good thing because this gets pushed out to mainstream media and highlights in the negative aspect of crypto. Could just be All a right, bot of CZ though, you don't know. It's true. I've got, I a have about 800 CZs in my comments every day and I'm just so it's honored very that he's- on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> CZ clones. Wednesday's top story. So today we're kicking things off with an interesting development in the world of central bank digital currencies, better known as CBDCs. According to the Iranian Chamber of Commerce, Industries, Mines, and Agriculture, the sanctioned nation of Iran will be launching a pilot project behind a so-called crypto real starting tomorrow. According to news first published on the 12th of this month, the central bank says the project is intended for use in micropayments to improve financial inclusion, to add programmability to the national currency, with the intention of essentially creating a nationally operated stablecoin you can think of, as opposed to creating something fully decentralized in the token vein, kind of like Bitcoin. And it's not mentioned in this article, but it does seem obvious, I guess, to anyone paying attention, that Iran would very much like to trade with partners using a token like this, since they still do have trading partners in Europe who they do business with, but who, as a result of being locked out of the US-led financial system, have had to resort to doing things like literally shipping gold and other stuff like that, which is a lot less efficient than using something like this. So I don't think this is a terrible story. I, I like to see people, again, trying to find ways to, to survive. You know, when the U.S. government wants to get you down, even if it's for a really good reason. Jen, what do you think here? You want to join me? Sure. I'm going to tell you why this story bummed me out a little bit. Really? I think if we look at what's, yeah, I, if, I think if we look at what's going on in Iran right now, the country is in 
political turmoil. And every time I think about a CBDC, my mind goes to privacy. And so when I think about a CBDC being launched in the current state of Iran, it makes me really worried. It makes me feel like anyone who speaks out against the regime in power could potentially not have access to their finances. And when I read the story, I saw that they're calling it a a crypto real. And I feel like that's a little bit sneaky. I feel like, you know, if you're a citizen of Iran and you're looking for an alternative, maybe you're looking for crypto and you, you stumble upon the crypto real and you end up with something that is not actually solving the problem you had to begin with. And so that's why I was bummed out when I read the story, Adam. But Christy, maybe you have a little bit more of a positive take. No, I really don't. In fact, I I was feeling exactly the same as you, Jen. I was there with you. Everything is about kind of alternatives and choices. There's kind of the internal situation in Iran, and then there's also the external situation in Iran. The internal situation in Iran is that as a country, it's largely been undergoing hyperinflation for the last number of years as a result of being locked out of the U.S.-led financial system. And so that means that although the turmoil is bad and it's, again, an authoritarian regime, essentially, who is cracking down on their people, a lot of the reason why those people are so unhappy and why the situation is so bad is because of the sanctions and because of sort of basically taking a country that was until kind of the modern era a very important country and a very important country from an economic sense um, and a trading sense and locking them out of everything and then kind of just sitting by people suffer, hoping that that suffering of their people will then bring them to the change of the government that the U.S. government doesn't like. The U.S. government has a long history of doing stuff in Iran. This is not a new story. This is only the latest sort of iteration of it. So it's important to take that into kind of context when we're thinking about this. But to your point, yeah, I mean, whenever we're talking about central bank digital currencies, I just take it as a given at this point that it's worse than neutral systems. But in some ways, it does have advantages, especially if it allows you to kind of route around the damage when you're kicked out of, for example, the global financial system, which then causes hyperinflation within your country. But your point is very well made. Christy, are you back with us? I think the issue is that we can't hear Christy, but the audience can hear Christy. And so while we sort that out on on the back end, Christy, I'm sorry, we're going to get that sorted out. Adam, I will respond back to you. I think your points are very valid. I'm focusing mainly on women in Iran under authoritarian regime. You know, women have so long traditionally been locked out of financial systems all over the world. And I see this as just another weapon to take maybe the little bit of power that women in in the country have away. You know, access to finances allow people to escape situations that you wouldn't be able to escape if you didn't have access to finances. And if money is programmable, I think that it makes it a little bit more difficult, especially in countries like this. And so I think your point is very well made uh, when it comes to international relations and hyperinflation. But privacy is just, you know, it's always top of mind when we talk about CBDCs for me. Christy, are you back with us? I am still here. You can hear. Yay. So what I was going to just quickly add in here when I was with Jen on this of being a little freaked out by the, uh, not freaked out, but, you know, disappointed, shall we say, for exactly the reasons that Jen was mentioning. And as a larger, broader implication, it will kind of be, in a way, a bit of a roadmap for other countries who want to do the same thing and test it out even further. I mean, it's not like China's not already well on the way, but I think that we're normalizing it. And the more countries we have that are using CBDCs, the more that there are, the more normal it will become. And, uh, you know, we've had some issues with our banking systems just here where I am uh, in Toronto, 
where all of a sudden things shut down, payment systems stopped working because of a bug in an upgrade and nobody could use digital money. Nobody could use their bank cards. People couldn't use their credit cards. The whole system was down and all we could use was cash. The economy ground to a halt for like 24 hours. And I think that should have been a wake up call that maybe we don't want to put everything online that way. And maybe we do still need cash for certain things. And I think that the more that we see this happening around the world, the less in touch we are going to be with where our funds actually are and how much control we have over them. Yeah, I think that's a really well-made point. When I think about these types of systems, what I'm thinking about is adding more options for people. So it's not to say that it's not to say that central bank digital currencies should or are even well suited to replace things like cash. It's to say that it's better if people have more options because then we can pick between the options, figure out what's best in our particular situation, and then, you know, again, use whichever one is right in that particular moment. So as I think again to the as long as there are options, exactly. I mean, that's that's the point of all of this stuff. That's kind of the reason why I became interested in cryptocurrency in the first place was because lacking options, people take what they're given. But if you have options, then people will pick the thing that's best in their situation. And I think that that's one of the most powerful sorts of expressions of what's called intelligence at the edges of the network, right? Rather than sort of the central, hey, this is the one solution, everybody has to use it. And as a result, you know, like 60% of people are poorly served by it uh, at any given time. But we can move on. Thursday's top story. Okay, let's turn, turn to Coinbase and talk about a hundred million transaction that has a few people thinking Coinbase might be up to something. This is according to a report from the Wall Street Journal alleging that Coinbase has been opening up its own proprietary trading firm, including a hundred million dollar transaction that was settled earlier this year. The key point in this is, is Coinbase trading against its own clients by operating its own proprietary internal trading scheme, essentially another way to make revenue knowing what they're doing with their own order book. Coinbase wrote a blog post saying that the report itself from Wall Street Journal was false and seemingly misleading based on a misunderstanding between client firm money and the firm's money itself. Right now, we don't have a lot more information than that, but it is interesting going into a bear market and looking at the spread of different exchanges out there what these firms are doing and if they are up to any games. Of course, if Coinbase was involved with something like this, that would be a big no-no. And I could definitely see some legislation or regulation coming down upon them because of this. But at this point, it doesn't really seem like much besides a report from the Wall Street Journal. So we'll have to wait and see more. Adam, I'll throw this up to you, get your take on it, maybe a little bit more of an explanation about why this sort of thing matters for exchanges. Yeah, so I am not an expert when it comes to all of this particular stuff, but I do know enough to tell you that proprietary trading is something that is not restricted to cryptocurrency exchanges. And in fact, all of the big banks have proprietary trading desks where they are somewhat notorious in some cases for taking exactly the opposite bet <laughs> that they're telling their clients to do. You know, they're paying clients who are paying them for advice, and then sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but they're taking the opposite side of the bet. That feels problematic to me. And I got to tell you, I don't really care if it's an exchange that's doing it or if it's a big firm that's doing it on the banking side. It seems like that's something that at the very least should be disclosed. And again, these, 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 these things sometimes, even when they are disclosed, are just not properly understood. So again, it comes down to not as this, not a Coinbase issue, but sort of a whole market structure issue and a transparency issue, I think, more so than that. But that's kind of my only read on it. Again, I don't really know enough about kind of Coinbase's internal operations to really have much more of comment than that. Jen? 
Yeah, what was interesting to me, so I think, you know, Coinbase's shares are down, I I think it's almost or more than 70%, right? And so they are looking for ways to generate revenue that is not based on retail trading. We're in a bear market. Uh, uh, retail traders are being much more cautious right now. And so these, these experiments are to be expected. I think the way that the story is reported in the Wall Street Journal is interesting. And it makes me think, who is telling the truth? There is a little snippet in that story. It says, the people who spoke to the Wall Street Journal said employees were discouraged from sharing information about the new trading business or discussing it in internal communications. That sounds very strange, dodgy to me. I think if you're telling your employees, don't talk about this and encouraging people not to share, you can expect reports like this to come out in the Wall Street Journal. Employees are going to wonder what's going on behind the scenes, especially when your company is being closely looked at by regulators for other things. I wonder what's really going on. It doesn't seem cut and dry. Coinbase's response was really interesting. I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of the story. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I'd actually take the opposite approach. I think that's probably pretty standard corporate communications, right? Trying to keep the walls up and keep employees inside, not talking to outsiders, especially when Coinbase has gotten so much flack over the last few years and it's gotten a lot of press time. Uh, I, I can see that they would not want anyone talking outside the walls. And Coinbase is not a finished product, right? They're launching a lot of different things. I think they're moving towards prime brokerage, or if not, prime broker already. They're adding like a lot of different financial services to their deck. Right now, most people know them as a crypto exchange where you can go buy whatever tokens on your mind. But in the future, they'll probably be a lot more than that. Like They have Coinbase Vault. They have a lot of Coinbase staking products. They recently launched Coinbase Cloud, which is basically like an API product for developers. And I could see them moving into proprietary trading like this as well. The question, however, is like how are the internal structures set up within Coinbase to protect the clients from being screwed over by other employees at the company? Uh, the bottom line is Coinbase wants to make money. Like you mentioned, Jen, like they're down 70% year to date. A lot of firms are down a lot of money this year, especially crypto companies. So I will have to add that in there. But Coinbase must be looking for other sources of revenue. Something like this would make sense in the future. The question is, like, how do you protect your clients that you currently have from your own team when it's trying to launch this sort of trading desk? Adam, throw it over to you. Yeah, so another angle that I would take on this story is that when you're thinking about sort of cryptocurrency as a movement, right, really what you're looking at here is something that's being driven, at least on the currency competition side, which is, again, like the Bitcoin side of things, not by things that are happening within the world of crypto, but things that are happening in the real world, in the traditional financial world. And the only reason why something like Bitcoin is even in the slightest interesting is because we live in a world that has effectively an insolvent monetary system that is in the process of collapsing very slowly and with much pain. So when you think about it from that perspective, what you're looking at is something where it's not about cryptocurrency, it's about everything else. And so we look for sort of indications of what's going to happen. We abstract things. One of the biggest abstractions I think that many people who are not deep within the industry have is Coinbase. They look to Coinbase as the first major publicly traded company on the exchange side that's really kind of hewn towards US regulation as sort of a sign that things are becoming normal. And so the performance of Coinbase is actually really important, not because anybody's invested in it. I honestly don't care about that at all, but because of what it signals about what the industry is doing. So whenever you see attacks like this that appear like, hey, that's actually normal in the real world, or this is actually something that, that isn't kind of out of the ordinary or typically worth reporting, but it is reported. And especially when it's reported in this sort of breathless manner, 
you know, you can also just take that into account that sure, there's the narrative about Coinbase, but more importantly, there's the narrative about cryptocurrency and kind of what Coinbase means to that and represents within that makes it almost a symbolic company in many ways. So with that said, I think we can probably move. No, go ahead. I get you. I had my little breath. I just want to uh, add to Will what you were saying there. I didn't mean to insinuate that Coinbase is doing something Dodger Strange. What they are doing is completely legal. But Will, I do want to respond. The best way to get people to start talking is to tell them not to talk. So I think this is maybe a lesson in internal communications. If you're saying, don't tell anyone about what we're doing to a company with hundreds of employees, I think that you can expect that employees are going to start speaking amongst each other and then reports like this are going to come out in the media. And so that is my final take on that. Friday's top story. Well, let's move to the last story. Going to throw it over to Sam. We got some interesting stuff in Ethereum space with F2 pool yeah. or Stakefish rather. Yeah, Stakefish, F2 pool. So F2 pool is a big Bitcoin mining pool that you might have heard of. It's the third biggest. Their sister company, it shares a co-founder. It's the founder of Stakefish. It's a validator on Ethereum and other chains. This is just kind of a big piece of drama that I had to put up at midnight last night, um, Eastern time, where they had to cut 25% of their employees. They're citing the bear market generally, but there's just some like crazy little tidbits in this story. First off, they gave people like two days notice and those two days notice came two days before the Ethereum merge. So as most of us know at this point, the Ethereum merge shifted the operation of Ethereum from miners to validators. This is one of the largest validators. And then on the day of the merge, people were cut 25% from this company. They worked for years and then they're gone. I don't know. There, there's a ton in here. I recommend reading it. There's also, I think this is a good launching off point to talk broadly about what the merge means for validators in light of tornado cash sanctions, which mean that validators might have to stop proposing or attesting to block. So adding transactions to the Ethereum ledger that are sanctioned by OFAC. There's, there's, you know, the, the merge was supposed to be a really exciting time but for validators, but because of obviously the bear market and then this broader regulatory um, context, it actually hasn't been quite as cheery as one might um, expect. Yeah, this is a really interesting story from a, I'll take another angle. I think the the merge angle is also important here, but just looking at how employees are being handled during terminations going to a bear market, we all know like it's tech, right? So in tech, there's up cycles and there's down cycles. People get washed out. Like that's not going to change. It's just the nature of working in the tech industry and working at tech startups. Crypto tends to be on that farther out edge as well, right? Because it's tied to tokens, tied to the prices of tokens, tied to interest from retail. And those whips are really, really strong. And so we see a lot of people get washed out quickly. Uh, they might have been at the company for a few months and they're gone. They might have been there for quite a while. It doesn't matter. Uh, the executives at the company have to make a decision and get rid of folks. In this case, some solid reporting from you, Sam. I'd, Curious how you found out about this information, but it looks like the people at Stakefish were given the notice in a, like a very odd manner where they found out like before they were going to be fired, they found out from the wrong people. And a lot of these people didn't feel like they should have been let go in the first place and led to some resignations. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on that side, side of the story. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you were talking about these heavy whips um, that people are feeling from bull market to bear market, specifically in crypto. I won't get into exactly how I heard about the entire story, but 
you alluded to the fact, and I have something in here about one of the employees who was laid off was one of the top leadership there, Dan Huang. He was tipped off by one of his direct reports named Dimi. Dimi was supposed to replace Dan, thought that the whole thing was BS, told Dan, hey, you're getting laid off, and then laid, you know, laid himself off. He um, ended up resigning from the company just because he thought things were so poorly handled. The fact that things were being spread by rumors to employees. Some employees, I have something here. Um, there's a bunch of Slack messages quoted. Somebody said, quote, today on the Slack channel, as of today, one member of the marketing team has still not been contacted by anyone that they're to be fired tomorrow. So it, it just was handled poorly all around. So yes, there is that side of things. But then there's this other broader context that I want to get into. You mentioned F2Pool by accident at the beginning, their sister company. But it's actually been a little bit of a rough patch, if you want to call it that, for F2Pool. The Bitcoin miners, they used to be Ethereum miners. There's this really interesting study that came out from Hebrew University last week that some folks might have seen. I'm not sure if we reported on it in Coindesk, but basically they did something called, they're, they're calling it a bandit attack, they being the Hebrew University folks, where they were changing the times on blocks in order to win more blocks than other similarly resourced miners, they being F2Pool was doing this. And there's this big you know, controversy on the, now it's irrelevant because Ethereum mining isn't a thing, but there's this big controversy around whether this was a quote unquote attack on the consensus level of Ethereum or whether it was just smart business to do this strategy for two years that nobody else knew about that you know, ended up letting them win more blocks than others. I don't know, sorry to go on a big ramble there, but really interesting couple of companies to, to focus on right now. We love big rambles on this show. I wanted to pick it up from Will where, <laughs> where you left off. The story paints this picture of like a really unorganized and toxic work environment. There's a quote in there from the CEO and founder, Chun Wang. He said, it's normal in a bear market to reduce team size and optimize costs. Only non-tech positions are laid off. We're still working hard to hire more developers and DevOps. And I just think this whole thing just, just like tells a story again about a leader who in some ways may be out of touch because we've seen companies who have prepared properly for the bear market, who have not had to lay off people during this bear market. I hear leaders in this industry and it's not just the CEO. There are so many others who say, you know, it's time to build. We're only hiring developers. I feel like they're forgetting about all of the other parts that make a functioning company. Like when your developers leave, you, you need people working in HR to renegotiate or to hire more developers. If there is a hack because of a bug, you need someone in PR or comms to manage that crisis. If there's new regulation passed down, you need someone to re-strategize your business. And so I just think when we hear CEOs say things like this, it just shows like unpreparedness and out of touchness. And I don't like it. There's my big rant. I don't like it either. Yeah. No, but I, I think you're hitting on some important points here. One thing that was interesting in the story was they decided to make this layoff on the day of the merge, September 15th. And whether that was coincidence, because the merge was sort of like a moving target, we didn't quite know when it was going to happen, or if it was chosen, doesn't really matter, right? Because it happened on the day that was pretty important, not only for crypto, but for a company like Stakefish, which was built around the merge actually happening. Imagine working at a company and you're running with everybody for two plus years to develop a product. And then the day that you get there, they ax you, right? The day that you get to the finish line, you just get chopped off. And so it's unfortunate, I think it leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, which led to some of the resignations here. To your comment, Jen, like I do think there is some difficulty here, right? Like a lot of these founders are first times. 
or they haven't had to let people go before. And I think it's, it's pretty easy to mishandle this information or to trust the wrong people at your company. And before you know it, like the information gets out incorrectly. It's not handled as you want it to be handled and things slip out of control. People are really tough to work with. And I think you find that out in some of these more human stories. Sam, throw it over to you for last thoughts. Yeah, just two things. So on the this CEO, Chun Wang, um, like I said, he was the co-founder of F2Pool. He's actually done this before. I didn't include it in this story because I wasn't able to get enough on the record to make it interesting. But there have been big layoffs at this company before. He's, I, I think, a billionaire. He's you know been at this for a little while, which makes this all the more galling. That's on one side. But the other thing you mentioned, which I, I think is important here, it wasn't only layoffs. There were also resignations. One of the resignations was from somebody who was supposed to, according to many employees, at a certain point become the CEO of this company. Maybe that wasn't the case by the time this resignation happened. Anyway, that's a big loss. Some of the other folks who resigned, they cited ideological differences between themselves and Stakefish, this validator. And I think this gets to a larger point that I think bears focusing on moving forward past the merge and as crypto writ large matures, which is you have employees of these companies who have that kind of, whether it's libertarian or rebellious or whatever it is, they have this sort of ideological bent to them that drew them to the space. But then you have these much more, you know, operationally focused, you know, profit focused CEOs running these companies and whether the ideology comes at, you know, comes to a head with what is needed to make money at these operations will become more and more interesting and maybe we'll see more resignations as time goes on, not only at Stakefish, but beyond. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas.